You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson and this is episode 26 and the week beginning August the 12th. And I'm saying that because we've had a couple of requests from people to help identify the podcast that they are listening to. Having done that, it's time to welcome my co-host, David Leach. David, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Giles. I trust all our listeners are enjoying the podcast and uh, we hope they... Keep talking about electricity. (laughs) (laughs) And all the things that go with it, yes, indeed. Look, we've got a few things on today. Uh, We've got a guest uh, coming up later on. Much on the agenda. Look, I guess the big ticket item last week, and there's no way of going about um, avoiding it, is the COAG Energy Council. But let's focus first on something, or, or a couple of things, that didn't actually come out much in the mainstream media, at least at the time of our talking, and that's about the Integrated System Plan, which is the AEMO document, which was re- released about three weeks ago, and stands quite apart from the National Energy Guarantee Modelling, which sort of you know, purports to model an outcome where renewables come to a crashing halt and nothing is built for the next decade and we've gone over that before and complained about that modeling the integrated system plan actually looks at a scenario where we are likely to get to 46 percent renewables by 2030 under current policies and we could get in way more than 60 percent should labor get in and have a more ambitious um, emissions reduction target and this basic strategy was it was really a blueprint for action for the next 20 years about what we need to do to accommodate all those renewables. And I guess one of the things, David, and one of the things that you raised beforehand was that, well, what happens to it now? Is it just a document that just sits by itself? But no, not according to the Coag Energy Council. Yes, Giles, it might be worth reading out a little bit from the uh, paragraph from the official Coag communique. Uh, Council requested that the ESB report to the December 2018 meeting on how the Group 1 projects identified in the ISP can be implemented and delivered as soon as practical and with efficient outcomes. Uh, The ESB will also report on how the Group 2 projects will be reviewed and progressed. Uh, Ministers also asked that in addition to the consultation on the current ISP that is underway, the ESB should identify a work program, including, and this is very important, possible changes to the RIT uh, minus T test and convert the ISP to an actionable strategic plan. The ESB chair should take the lead on its delivery and report back to the December 2018 meeting. So I think this was a very strong endorsement from COAG of the work that of the ISP, and it particularly means uh, two things in the short term. It means that the stage one uh, priorities identified in the integrated system plan, which are an indica- uh, strengthening of the Uh, ability to transfer electricity between Queensland and New South Wales and Victoria and New South Wales, uh, an upgrade to the transmission system in northwest Victoria that we know is badly needed. Well, that's very badly needed because there's so many, as we've written a couple of weeks ago, um, there's so many projects actually on hold at the moment because of um, basically network constraints. That's right. So there's still going to be this issue that as uh, uh, much uh, encouragement as COAG has given AEMO, it's still going to take time. 
we've been banging on here, you and I, for years that the transmission system would not be able to keep up with the rate of renewables progress and that transmission uh, was really important if we were going to have a strong uh, transformation to renewables and so it's proving. Now the other thing just going on though is these stage two projects. First of all the RIT minus T test is a regulatory test. I'm not going to bore everyone, all our listeners with that, but it's an important test because no one's ever been able to pass it. <laughs> and the result is that we haven't had any, any much new transmission links for a long time. The basis of the test is that the consumers in both sides of the transmission upgrade have to be better off. That's a sort of, it's, I'm not it, arguing. It's a very na- narrow economic focus, isn't it? And I think what people want to do is actually change that and broaden it out, looking to the future transition and sort of say, look, if we can get value from this investment out of that, then that should be a reason for it to go ahead. That's right. But the key thing of the stage two proposals is this Riverlink uh, transmission upgrade, which will basically see a new interconnector built between South Australia and New South Wales. And all the co- way to Wagga Wagga, yes, that's right. All, all the way to Wagga Wagga. And what uh, this means, you know, and I think the endorsement by COAG of this uh, increases the chances that this interconnection actually will be built. And that's going to have profound implications for a lot of existing projects around the place. Particularly all the pumped hydro projects in South Australia will now have to not only deal with issues in South Australia, uh, and this would go for the solar thermal project as well, but also the fact that more uh, power from New South Wales can flow into South Australia, making the economics of all those South Australian projects more difficult. And if you look at Hugh Sadler's report, he says that the modelling in, in the, the good modelling in the ISP report uh, basically suggests that the gas plants in South Australia, uh, once this interconnector is built, will, will also run a lot less. So there's quite a lot of implications for people who are looking at their investments from this that, that to, to be thought about. Yes, indeed. In fact, I was talking at some, to someone at the recent Clean Energy Summit and they were talking about a massive solar farm with a massive amount of battery storage um, that they were going to um, site uh, right on the border between South Australia and New South Wales in anticipation that uh, this uh, river link would actually go ahead. So people are already positioning for... Um, uh, positioning themselves for that going ahead. Um, also, as part of those Group 2 projects, we should point out are the renewable energy zones, which um, AEMO and I think some of the transmission companies would like to put together, and that's basically sort of setting aside areas such as in Barnaby Joyce's electorate, such as in southwest New South Wales, where these pro- projects are going, and elsewhere, um, just to make sure that everything's grouped together in areas where they've got good transmission links. Uh, that's right, and of course, when you you know, it's a build it and they will come approach. And we've already seen in uh, the ERCOT region in Texas, uh, that, which is Texas, <laughs> that it works very well. If you build the transmission links and run them through uh, an area where, which is good for wind and solar, uh, uh, Bob's your uncle. What do we need to think about then, David, to make sure that there's no gold plating of this then? Uh, to be honest, uh, I'm, not sh- I'm not sure that there will be a lot. I-, I don't know about the gold plating side of things. In-, in this case, I think there should be less emphasis on the gold plating and more about getting it done in, in an efficient and effective manner. Uh, I-, I don't know. I- the normal thing you do is put everything out to tender. Uh, um, uh, Until I- it happens. Maybe allow someone besides Transgrid or, or-, or-, or PowerCore to actually build for the o- to bid for the ownership of it. Uh, it'll be a regulated transmission line, so I guess it's just making sure... I, I'm not a power engineer, yeah. I, I don't know about the gold plating. 
Oh, that's okay. Look, um, look. So apart from the RESP, which is really a uh, remarkable st- um, step forward, and um, I think we'll be writing about that on Monday. Um, the other thing was um, Alan Finkel produced a report. He didn't get much time, unfortunately, because of all the discussions about the NEG and with the ISP, but about hydrogen, and um, that's quite interesting. Look, my understanding of this report, and it hasn't been fully released, is really identifying that there is a fantastic opportunity in Australia to export hydrogen, um, also use it domestically, but I think the focus of this is mostly on the hydrogen exports and obviously the implication there is not to use brown coal as a hydrogen expert as export but rather um, fantastic resources of wind and solar so this is a very much looking at the future um, scenario but fascinating all the same and um, David you've actually done a bit of work too I think in, 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 a, in a bit of storage research which touched on hydrogen. Um, thanks Giles I, I'm a co-author a 10% co-author on a report with which primarily authored by Keith Lovegrove, uh, which looked at uh, firming up renewable generation. I must say, uh, I don't know anything about hydrogen. I'll be quite frank about it. The part of the report I worked on wasn't the hydrogen part, but we did conclude in the report that at the moment, the idea of, say, firming up a wind power with hydrogen uh, wasn't very attractive economically. To get hydrogen, uh, the basic model we studied was you've got to have an electrolyzer component that separates out the hydrogen from the oxygen then you've got to have somewhere to store the hydrogen and that's where its advantage is it's very cheap to store and doesn't um, if you do it properly it will stay stored for a long time and then even after that you've got to run the hydrogen through a turbine or something like that to start generating your power which in the model we studied was a combined cycle gas generator that had been modified and we ended up concluding it was quite expensive in domestic use but if you're exporting the hydrogen then that may be a different story. I'm not too sure whether you get to be called a co-author if your contribution was only 10%, David, but um, we'll let you run with that one. Look, it's interesting. There's a couple of hydrogen projects are happening in South Australia at the moment, Port Lincoln and, um, and in Adelaide as well, so um, that's pretty interesting. Um, look, before we move on to our um, interview today, there was just one other renewable energy project. Um, they said the, the announcements seemed to be slowing down a little bit um, recently, but um, this one was interesting. This was a PPA with flow power um, and WinLab, which will help bring the uh, Lakeland 104 megawatt wind farm, I think it is, up near Townsville, just south of Cooktown in North Queensland, to fruition. Um, interesting, Flow Power has done a bunch of different PPAs and contracts with wind and solar farms in Victoria. They're on selling that to business customers who would like a renewable focus and presumably um, a cheaper focus there. So I just thought that was worth noting. Indeed, and I think I heard, and I'm sure you did too, uh, the principal of Flow Power talk at the recent CEC summit. And they've been quite innovative and aggressive, uh, and not the only renewable company in that way, in getting into the corporate PPA market. And uh, this is just another move. I think they're a fairly rapidly growing company and one to keep an eye on. And, you know, it's great for WinLab to make some progress as well. Uh, uh, we all know that uh, Roger Price at Woodlamp is, is probably one of the most original thinkers in the business. Uh, we've had him on this podcast before, and uh, so that's all good news. Indeed, indeed. And look, speaking on renewables, uh, you managed to catch up with Andrew Smith, who's the head of renewables at National Australia Bank, and this is what um, he had to say. Hi to our special guest today, Andrew Smith, who's the head of energy at National Australia Bank. Uh, Andrew, perhaps um, uh, welcome, and perhaps you could start by just telling us a little bit about the business you're responsible for. Uh, Thank you very much, David. Very kind uh, of you to invite me along. Um, It's it's a great podcast and and great to be here. 
So I run NAB's uh, Structured Energy Lending Book, which covers uh, all forms of electricity generation, renewable and conventional electricity, T&D and, and new energy technologies. Uh, we've got a team here based in, in Melbourne covering Australia, uh, certain parts of Asia, a team in London covering the UK island, certain parts of northern Western Europe, and, and a team in New York covering uh, the USA and, and Canada. That's great. And um, I guess let me start by asking, I guess, a broker's question, which is about credit conditions. I've, uh, I see that bond rates are going up. Uh, I, I get the vibe that banks locally are seen a little bit tougher, somewhat described as a credit squeeze. I wouldn't go that far. And of course, the outlook for uh, electricity prices may not be as strong as it was. But before we get to that, how are you seeing credit conditions for uh, lending to the energy sector at the moment? Uh, you've touched on uh, you know, bond spreads widening. Uh, that, that's right. Uh, bond spreads have widened this year. Um, it, banks fund themselves in a, in a variety of ways, you know, one of which is in the long-term debt capital markets, uh, where we have seen uh, fixed income spreads widen. Um, at this stage, uh, you know, we're monitoring that in, in terms of how that translates into the uh, domestic project finance loan market, which is I illiquid private debt. Uh, but in, in general, market conditions for project financing, uh, domestic energy projects, in particular renewable energy projects, is, is pretty competitive uh, with a whole series of, of deals getting done. I think the key challenge uh, at the moment for finances in the, in the market is is the supply of projects uh, coming to the finance market, which have long-term PPA or, or CFDs more correctly in place with, with credit-worthy uh, credit counterparties. That's, that's the biggest challenge, really. That is that there's not enough of them. Most of the projects coming up here don't have uh, PPAs that are either long enough or, or, or strong enough. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I think uh, there are a lot of developers. There's a lot of projects in the development stage, whether it's early, mid, late stage, uh, a key enabler for them is securing a long-term offtake with a credit-worthy counterparty. Uh, and the idea behind that is that shifts the price risk away from the project uh, to, to the uh, counterparty under the arrangement. Uh, that's key in order for the developer or, or investor to be able to attract competitively priced capital, whether, whether that's debt or, or equity. Uh, so for projects with long-term long contracts in place, uh, there's significant liquidity uh, from the bank market uh, to finance those. But, you know, the reality is is that there are a lot of projects out there. There's there's very few contracts uh, on a long-term basis with credit-worthy counterparties. And as a result of that, that's putting uh, a lot of downward pressure on, on CFD and, and PPA prices, uh, which is re resulting in only the best pro projects coming forward. And I guess that's the nature of capital markets, that they're supposed to be the best projects come forward. Look, I, I'm sure I could talk about this for an hour, but I, 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 you haven't got that long and, and our listeners will probably wouldn't want to listen that long. So I, I'd, I'd, like, <laughs> I'd like to uh, start by asking uh, uh, about, um, I guess, distinguishing between what banks traditionally offer, which I think is three to five year money, and the longer term credit markets. One of the issues that's been put to me is that for projects with only shorter term PPAs that you know, banks may well lend for three or five years, but then they have to think about whether they're going the refinancing that comes at the end of that. And I guess what I see is that in Australia, traditionally, many companies have had to go offshore one way or another for longer term 
uh, project finance, you know, there's not much of a private placement market in you know, AUDs sourced out of Australia. Uh, can you just tell me how, if you're trying to help your clients, how you think about helping them with uh, longer term debt finance and, and, and what NAB thinks about when it's looking at how to structure, structure a project? It's a good question, David. Uh, what we see firstly is the most liquidity uh, in, in the banking market at the five year uh, point on the curve. Uh, there's still meaningful amount of liquidity at seven years but the majority of liquidity is at, at five years. There are uh, banks and indeed non-bank lenders uh, prepared to provide longer term debt, but uh, the, the reality is, is that um, long term debt is suited to some projects and, and not other projects. Uh, as an example of that, if you have a, a 15 year or, or a 20 year offtake with a, a credible counterparty for an operational project, uh, it is a lot easier for a bank or a non-bank lender to put in place long term money than it is uh, for a project, for example, with a, a seven-year contract, uh, if, if a project has a seven-year contract, uh, putting in place a, a 15, 16-year financing door-to-door -door is a lot more difficult because what the lender is looking to do then is, is try and understand the market risk in the transaction and, and how that can evolve over a long period of time. So uh, in, in short, certain projects are, are very well suited to long-dated long debt. Uh, others are, are better suited to short-term debt. Um, and at the uh, five-year point on the curve uh, is probably where you get the most liquidity. But in terms of your point, David, on the private placement market offshore, uh, you know, NAB was one of the first financiers to take one of the hallets to the US private placement market uh, and secure long-term financing uh, from uh, US-based investors. Uh, and there are other financiers now looking to uh, raise capital offshore, particularly from Asia. Uh, and uh, translate that money into local Aussie dollars and, and provide long-term funding. But again, that, that's for the right project. I, I, I guess I see that the Australian superannuation industry, it seems to be an asset class, longer-term debt funding, that if it was properly organised, uh, should be a good vehicle for their, their own investors, like you have a long-term liability and a, and a long-term asset. Uh, and I know that NAB itself is trying to put together a, uh, I think it was a $200 million pool of its, of its own loans and, and, and form more of a, a, a kind of um, uh, fund, a debt fund. Yeah, that's exactly right. What we see in other markets we operate in is the influx of, of non-bank lenders. Uh, the Australian uh, project finance market is currently dominated by uh, big commercial banks and, and the project finance teams which reside within those banks. And what we've been trying to do is bring or, or facilitate new entrants into the market. And, and one of the things we've done recently uh, is launched and closed the low carbon shared portfolio. And the idea behind that was to be able to crowd in institutional capital to provide another source of liquidity into a growing market. Uh, we, we did that, uh, we closed the deal at around 200 million. And it sort of, it drives really on the theme of uh, un unmet demand from investors looking to invest for purpose. So not just investors looking to achieve a, a financial return from their investment, but also looking to achieve a societal return uh, and the project finance market into the renew renewable energy market provides just that. And, and do you see that market, uh, is the demand there to, for that market to develop? Uh, we, we certainly think so. And we're continually looking to work on diff different ideas to be able to crowd in different investors. Because what we want to do is we want to be able to provide a financing solution that's well suited to 
uh, project but also meets the investor's needs. If an investor wants a long-term debt solution uh, and the project is, is well positioned for that, then you know, we're certainly giving uh, thought uh, at NAB to you know, how we can facilitate that. Yeah, and let me. Another trend I notice is that companies are getting bigger. You know, in result, as a result, I guess of not having quite so many PPAs to organise, they're trying to consolidate all of their projects into one. I guess for a company without a PPA, how much more? I mean, can you? What kind of difference in cost of capital is there? I mean, you're not going to lend as much, uh, and you're going to charge a higher rate uh, if you've only got a shorter-term PPA. But can you give me some quantitative idea of what what sort of difference I'm likely to see? Yeah, when it comes to market risk and and the residual mar- market risk retained at a project and not transferred out to a, a counterparty, uh, it, it does really sit on the spectrum. But you're right, a fully contracted deal which passes all the price risk to a creditworthy counterparty. Uh, all us being equal has a uh, a lower price, a, lo- a lower credit margin, but also has more more debt capacity. Uh, and as you transcend along the spectrum to to be fully merchant, um, you know li- liquidity starts to disappear. Uh, in in terms of liquidity for fully merchant projects in the in the domestic project finance market today, uh, that's quite limited. The CEFC has been very active in that space, um, but I, d- I don't think at this stage there's been too many commercial banks that have provided. Uh, a project finance deal to a project that has unabated uh, market risk. That's right. So that's the challenge for everyone looking forward. And um, in general, do you uh, budget or expect that the market will be, um, your loan volumes for the year will be higher over the next couple of years, about the same or, or, or a bit less? I'll just just touch on one thing. It's um, in terms of the point relating to uh, the PPA market and, and, and market risk, what we have seen uh, is a lot of corporates coming into the space uh, and they've been driven by, I think, two factors. One, their own green agenda, but two, uh, they're looking to manage their, their own electricity price exposure because what the corporates are seeing is is that as le- wholesale electricity prices rise, that, that is one part of the retail cost act. They're looking to try and manage. One of the ways they can look to manage that is through entering into a CFD with a project there is a whole education piece uh, that accompanies that. Uh, corporates are, are relatively used to a, a one or two year physical electricity supply agreement. So moving from a, a one, two year supply agreement uh, to a uh, synthetic or financial derivative instrument uh, that you're gonna strike over a seven to 10 year period uh, does certainly re- require some edu- education. Um, on your point, David, around uh, how, we're, how we're looking to manage volumes and you know, what we're expecting to see. Um, I, I think we're certainly coming off the back of a tremendously successful period uh, in, in the domestic renewable energy market. Uh, you know and your listeners know in 2015 there was about six gigawatts or so required to meet the RET. Uh, I think the clean energy regulator came out el- earlier this year and said uh, that had been revised from six gig to 6.4 given there was more solar than wind and the capacity factors are different. But where they're seeing it at the moment is is that there was about six and a half gigawatts either already built or had hit uh, NTP and was in construction. Uh, in addition to that, there's a whole swathe of projects which had PPAs, so that was going to see the rep built out. In terms of what's going to be built going forward, uh, I probably would like to say that uh, you know when when you just take a step back, uh, you know we've got a a a forecast from AEMO which is suggesting flat level uh, grid demand. Uh, for the foreseeable future, 
Uh, we've got ageing existing infrastructure and thermal plant which, come up, which will come off. Uh, and renewable energy, utility scale, wind and solar is, is the cheapest new entrant. Uh, so, you know, we are expecting to see uh, c continued development of uh, large-scale projects in, in the best locations, um, you know, continuing whether, whether it will continue to be at the same pace as uh, what we're seeing in, in the last couple of years or not. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see how, how all that pans out, part of which will, will be an outcome on the NEG and, and, and what the emissions trajectory is ultimately set on that. I won't talk about the NEG, and unfortunately we're running out of time because, like I said, I could go for a long time on this fantastic conversation. But uh, let me just ask about the reports today about the NEG part two or the second part of it, which is the federal government essentially coming in and offering debt finance for some, some form of energy. Do you think that's... How do you feel about competing with the federal government on that basis and, and how in general does NAB feel, does it have an attitude about lending towards new or existing thermal generation? I haven't read the report about um, the government actually providing finance. I have seen uh, the suggestion that, that the government would look to put in place a, a CFD for uh, dispatchable flexible generation in order to facilitate uh, a, a competitive financing to ensure there's, there's adequate flexible generation to balance uh, intermittent generation. Uh, so I have seen that um, but in some ways we, we compete with government financing today, whether that's through uh, the CFC or, or, or NAIF. Um, and, I, and I think, uh, you know, there's a world where we will operate uh, quite effectively together um, uh, with, with different target mandates. So I think uh, commercial banks working alongside uh, government institutions providing finance can work well. And, and we've seen that in, in a whole range of markets, whether it's here or uh, whether it was, for example, a green investment bank uh, in the UK as well. That's right. And, and just, just this final question, and, and uh, we'll, we'll have to wind it up. It was just around the attitude to, does NAB have a policy? I know some banks do that they don't want to finance new thermal generation, but they, for instance, will continue their, their lending to existing projects. Uh, yeah, uh, in, in terms of thermal um, you know, we, we don't have a formal policy that says we, we will not finance uh, new, new thermal generation. Uh, the reality is, you know, we, we're, we're an existing lender to a whole range of thermal generation in the Australian market and, and thermal generation, both gas and coal, is, is critically important to the Australian energy system. Uh, going forward, uh, to the extent there is uh, new, new gas or coal, uh, you know, we'll certainly consider that on, on a case-by-case -case basis. I think the key point... Uh, David is is that uh, yeah the transition is underway, but uh, any transition needs to be orderly and and we're here to support that. I hear you, and uh, it's great to hear and look at NAB being up the top of uh, of the lending to the renewable industry in Australia. And uh, thanks very much in indeed for taking the time to talk to our listeners this morning. I I've enjoyed the conversation greatly. Thank you very much, David. Uh, appreciate the chance to to come on and uh, uh, speak to you. So that was Andrew Smith from National Australia Bank, the head of renewables. David, thanks very much for doing that interview. Um, for all the discussion about the future of renewables, I guess the big thing is what happens to the National Energy Guarantee now, which I guess was the big thing that came out of the COAG meeting, which we managed to avoid talking about for 20 minutes. Um, it was interesting to see what the mainstream papers said about it or the different press. Um, you know, Victory for the coalition, things put on hold, uh, rejection by the states. 
Um, look, a fair amount of water to go under the bridge, but it seems as though Victoria, at least, is pretty firm. It's not going to endorse this um, proposition without having some um, significant changes in the in 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 the design of the scheme, and, and particularly about making it more flexible. So. The only grounds for really supporting the NEG, at least the emissions uh, reduction component, is that it puts in place a mechanism that can be strengthened. There's universal acceptance that it, that it does uh, SFA, if I can use some vernacular, <laughs> um, uh, for for emissions reduction in the in the next ten years. And we hear the claims about price reduction, which I'm not going to go into because they're nonsense. And we, we hear the complaints, uh, the concerns about that it gives certainty, but it doesn't really give certainty as the point we've made. Or if it does, if it's locked in for 10 years, what we get is the certainty that without a change, an act of parliament, uh, we won't get any further emissions reduction in electricity from the feds. And so that's not really good enough. On the other hand, you have to give a compliment to Frydenberg for getting any policy up that has got even as close as this. And I've said several times that I, I personally don't think Mr Frydenberg is as anti-climate uh, change as, as some people of his party and would like to do as much as he can. But he hasn't done enough, you know. It's 28 to 20... We started with 26 to 28%. It turned out to be 26%. And, and the Victorian government, the, the two main complaints are around additionality. Well, I think that's something the state governments could let go if they had to, because additionality will happen anyway. And even in New South Wales, that's the most vulnerable state and needs to, with the biggest problem about replacing coal generators. And so there will inevitably be, be more uh, renewable generation built in New South Wales, whether there's additionality or not. So personally, I just see that as a, a bargaining chip the real point is about the form of the legislation and how easy it is to get the target changed. Now, I listened to Frydenberg this morning on Insiders on the television and he made the very fair debating point, debating point only, that Victoria has legislation, so why shouldn't there be federal legislation? And I, I, personally, I just think the length of it is wrong. I think if we had a three-year rolling review of the target, that uh, that would be enough. Doing it by regulation, uh, that that would also work. But what I do know is it's not good enough to just have one review in 10 years. Absolutely. So what we might see if there's any compromise here is that um, having legislation rather than regulation um, probably um, sort of you know, smooth over with additionality, but making sure that you get those three-year reviews. And I think that's the thing that the ACT wants. I think that's what Queensland wants. So that's the thing that they really have to get changed. That, of course, is the hardest thing to get past the coalition party room. Well, getting anything past the coalition party room is very difficult. And the simple point is, if you're dealing with people, a group of people who don't believe in climate change at all, then it's very hard to have a negotiation about the need to do anything. And, and this, is, this is a problem for Frydenberg. It's a problem for, for Turnbull, frankly, and it's a problem for anyone who wants to get anything done. There has to be a point, there has to be a point if we're going to make progress on this, uh, where we, you run over those guys. And I think their power has but diminished greatly. I mean, we don't need to talk about Barnaby Joyce. We don't need to talk about Abbott in the same way that we used to. Uh, we don't need to really worry too much about Craig Kelly. 
they're the loudmouths. It's the silent types that we need to worry about who kind of support what they say but just don't uh, poke their head over the parapet so much. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what offerings are made to the coalition party room just to get their support. Maybe, you know, if there is to be a compromise there, and this may come in this ACCC recommendation, which is about sort of writing a, um, a power purchase agreement or a sort of um, underwriting a power station from years 5 to 15 or whatever it was going to be. Um, it's seen by some as a means to possibly get a new coal-fired generator. What, what, what could Turnbull possibly advocate that would be meaningful I mean, is, is there any possible... I mean, he couldn't really get a new coal-fired power station. I, mean, well, I suppose he could probably design the auction in a way that he saw fit and had all the different parameters. It had to be baseload, it had to be 24-7, it had to be this. But, of course, you know, none of that's actually going to add to the stability of the grid. It's not what, it's not what the grid needs. It's not what AEMO's a, a recommending. And you can't get carbon reduction and have a new coal-fired power station, Giles. I don't yes, know I know that. I know that. Look, I'm just, I'm just trying to imagine the conversation in the party room. I mean, as, as troubling as it is. Um, he, he could run an auction for firming capacity, and he arguably should have done that, rather than just saying it was going to be Snowy 2. But Snowy 2 is going to deliver a lot of firming capacity. The... Um, there is no real need for it in the next while. There are no reliability concerns, according to AEMO, in the next few years. Uh, and by the time the deal closes, uh, we should be further down the track on Snowy 2, which gives you some more firming and dispatchability. It's just not needed right at the moment. So, But nevertheless, that's never stopped the federal government in the past. <laughs> Um, or any no, other government, right. if they want to throw money at something uh, because it will help with a political objective, uh, let's go live in a marginal electorate. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's all move there right now. Oh, well, look, I did talk to someone in the pub um, the other on Friday, and he knew someone who knew someone who sort of said there's you know, rumblings again. So um, it did make me think sort of momentarily about what Peter Dutton's approach to renewables was, just in case he does end up leader, but um, I'm not too sure whether that's going to happen. Lots of idle speculation around the place. Um, presumably he'd send them all to Man Manus Island on all the panels and the turbines. Um, so look, um, anything else happening in the coming week, David? Um, oh no, look, there is one interesting thing happening in the coming week. I think it's a um, it's a it's a sod turning ceremony for uh, GFG Alliance over in Port Augusta, which um, which would be which would be interesting. So um, they're finally getting a move on with their plans to power the Wayala Steelworks with solar and ultimately storage as well. Yes, as I said, I, I don't see any of the uh, any of the pumped hydro station power stands. We'll we'll have to think about this Riverlink thing uh, at the moment. That that's the next thing. Uh, you know, we're still mired in a little bit of uncertainty at the moment about exactly what direction we're going. So I do I do think, and you know, the forecast for electricity prices at the wholesale level are for them to fall. That's going to affect everyone in a negative way. Existing generators. Uh, and we saw that with AGL, which uh, 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 talked down their profit outlook quite significantly already. Um, and we're certainly going to see that for people trying to get new renewable projects up uh, as well. So at the moment, uh, I think we're in a, a bit of a holding pattern where the environment is looking less favourable than it did. You can't talk about REC prices anymore. Uh, you can't talk about wholesale prices. And so in, in a funny way, the market is kind of working. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, look, on, on that optimistic note, I think we'll call it a day, um, David. Look, thank you very much um, for joining us. Uh, uh, it's a pleasure to be here as ever, Giles.
Good on you, and um, thanks to you, everyone out there. Um, please, I hope you've been um, enjoying our new uh, website, the new design that uh, came up last week. And if you've got any um, requests or um, point out any errors, um, please do let us know. We'll fix them up as we go along. And uh, don't forget to tell your friends. Um, your podcast, this podcast, can be found on all your normal um, podcast platforms. And we'll be back next week for episode 27. Thank you. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatchers.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.